Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now, you may have noticed that today's episode is a little longer than usual, and that's because we're going to cover something special, Pop Group. Pop Group, or the Population Genetics Group Forum, is a gem in the UK's research conference circuit, and one of my favourites. It's one that both the Genetic Society and Heredity sponsor, and one that many of our editors and authors attend. So in this episode, given that registration for the next meeting has recently opened, we're going to learn all we need to know about Pop Group, from what it is and what we can expect at the next meeting, to its very origins and what it's like developing a decades-long research career alongside the conference. So, to get us started, let's hear from the organisers of the next meeting, which this year is being held at the University of Leicester. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you just introduce who you are? Yeah, I'm uh, Rob Hammond, one of the organisers of Pop Group 53. I'm Richard Badge, I'm also one of the organisers of Pop Group 53. And I'm Max John, and I'm also an organiser <laughs> of Pop Group 53. Well, it's great to have you all, and... You all just mentioned there, Pop Group 53, so I guess the burning question is, what is Pop Group 53? Uh, Pop Group 53 is a 53rd instigation of a proudly, if you like, user-organised population genetics conference. It's been based in the UK for the last 50-odd years and is uh, a bit of an institution, I think it's fair to say. Perfect. When is it um, this year? It's uh, from the 5th to the 8th of January 2020. The actual meeting will be held on the full Monday, full Tuesday and half of Wednesday uh, with registration opening on the Sunday. Is this something that you guys attend every year? Yeah, I mean, I, I've attended it. Um, I, I remember going to the first one when I was a PhD student back in the dim mists of time. And uh, I've been going not every year, but uh, pretty regularly ever since. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a very inclusive conference, I think, that um, encourages PhD students. It seems to be particularly non-hierarchical and um, very friendly. It's a place where lots of people established in their careers gave their first talks as PhD students. And uh, yeah, I find it a, a very um, uh, intellectually stimulating conference each year. So what made you decide to run it in Leicester this year? Well, you know, from my own point of view, it's really what I said last time, that, you know, I, I've been going... Uh, to it for you know many years and always found it you know a, a really great conference and I think it's got a fairly unique atmosphere and it is very friendly uh, it's about between 200 and 250 people and it's just the right sort of size uh, we have three parallel sessions and everybody's very welcoming and I've always felt it like that and and uh, because of that I, I personally value it as a, as a conference and I suppose wanted to give back to the community and uh, you know do my bit by hosting it you know although maybe sometimes I wake up regretting that decision um, and also actually you know I, I mean, I, it was actually a, a colleague of mine, Aaron Tauber. We talked about hosting it, and then he went off back to Israel and took a job there. So, um, if you're listening, Aaron, I will get my own back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I Pop mean, Group is uh, it was the place where I gave my first talk as a PhD student, and uh, it's certainly, although it was uh, fairly, you know, imposing to have Brian Charles was in the audience at that time. Nevertheless, uh, as Rob says, the conference is always friendly, open. Questions are asked that are about getting an answer. There's a very low preponderance of questions uh, that start with, I may have missed this or this is not really a question, uh, which I think is interesting. Um, I think for a lot of PhD students, that's their first exposure to genuine intellectual intercourse on the subject of their PhD or 
for the studies, and and it sets a really good example, and that is, you know, encapsulating all the all the things that we hold dear in terms of academic community. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really appropriate word for pop group. I think people who go to pop group see themselves as a community, and conferences community organised, and we uh, think that's an important part of that unique atmosphere. It sounds really interesting because you're talking about the fact that it's the way that a lot of young researchers cut their teeth. You're also talking about a community that kind of builds up and goes year after year. So I wonder what you think people might be able to expect from Pop Group if this is when they're attending for the first time and what people who are familiar with Pop Group might get out of this one. What are the treats on store this year? Well, I mean, it's a, the, the treats on store, obviously the talks, but we don't really know what those talks are going to be because it's uh, an open conference where people submit their talks there's no symposia structure on the conference and so uh, it's you know who wants to give a talk we'll, we'll get to give a talk but you know in past experience those talks have always been extremely high quality and uh, interesting and um, uh, inspiring and uh, there's a great cross-section from you know people very well established in the field of population genetics and evolutionary biology who'll be giving talks alongside PhD students maybe in their second or third year talking about their first you know, research and first steps into academic research. And it's that inclusiveness and broadness and friendliness that we've spoken about already, which I think uh, is the great, great thing that people will get from coming to the conference. And obviously lots of social occasions, lots of people to talk to. And because of the sort of non-hierarchical and that friendly nature is that you can just go up to talk to anybody and uh, enter into conversation. We should just say, though, that although we don't know what the uh, the contributed talks will be on. We do have four excellent plenary speakers, two from the UK and two coming all the way from the States. Should be giving really interesting talks. We're all very excited. And who are they this year? They are Katrina Lithgow from the University of Oxford, Melissa Wilson from Arizona State University, Anne Yoda from Duke University, and Stuart West, also from the University of Oxford. In addition to our four plenaries, we're also hosting the Mary Lyon uh, Medal Lecturer, Oliver Pibus, who will be giving his Mary Lyon Medal Lecture. Those should be some very good talks. Mm. I have seen some of those people give talks before. One thing I'd add is that in sort of approaching uh, plenaries to speak, although this isn't a huge international conference, everybody said yes pretty much first time because they said, oh yeah, I've always been wanting to go to Pop Group. I've heard about Pop Group before. I understand it's a unique opportunity to get to talk to lots of different people that are very um, easygoing and non-hierarchical meeting. And so it was great that they were so enthusiastic and yeah we're really looking forward to those talks yeah uh, and katrina lithka i think she she said that she gave her first talk <laughs> at pop group so you know um it's really nice that it can come full circle that uh, somebody gave their first talk at pop group can then be invited later on in their career to be uh, a plenary speaker which is great so i mean you were mentioning there that people are jumping at the chance to come to pop group and give a talk and i guess that's a really good way of asking how someone listening if they're like you know what I want to give my first PhD talk. I have a really good idea. How do they go about uh, submitting a talk? And what other options are available for them for attending and presenting their work at Pop Group? Uh, very simple. The first thing you would need to do is register to attend Pop Group. You can find links to the University of Leicester shop to buy your attendance at the Pop Group website, which is populationgeneticsgroup.org.uk. Once you've registered, there's another link on the Pop Group website where people can submit an abstract using a Google form and you can choose there, I think, whether you wish to 
present a poster or a talk. And talks are partitioned into three parallel sessions on every day of the conference, and they are partitioned in a first-come, first-served basis. So the most important thing, if you want to give a talk, and I hope you do, if you listen to this, um, the most important thing is to submit an abstract on the website as quickly as possible, uh, because they'll fill up and we've got... 102, I think. 102 slots. Just over 100 slots. So it's not a huge amount of time left. And registration's already open, so yep. the competition's on. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can also submit uh, for a poster. And when you submit for a talk, you can say that if you don't get a talk slot, you'll actually present a poster as well. The posters will be up throughout the conference, but we'll have a specific poster session with a drinks reception where people can stand by the posters and uh, talk to the assembled crowd. Oh, fantastic. And I understand that um, there is some help available for people to attend the conference, particularly around sort of student financing and childcare. Yeah, so there's a link on the uh, website to financial support. And as you say, there's very generous support from the Fisher Memorial Trust to uh, sponsor PhD students to attend. There's also links through to the Genetic Society for students who are members uh, and also postdoctoral researchers where there are scholarship programs for attending meetings. And also there's a, a section of the budget that's reserved to assist for people who might be traveling with family who need childcare support. And again, in all those cases, the details of who to contact are on the website. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, people taking up those opportunities so that the meeting is as accessible as possible to everybody. We also offer discounted attendance rates for genetic society members and for uh, student delegates as well, with a combined discount for students who are lucky enough to also be genetic society members. So we encourage people to look at how much money they could save by joining the Genetic Society before coming to the conference. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much for telling us about Pop Group. I really hope people will jump onto your website and register to come and hopefully have a nice full program full of really interesting talks. Yeah, and if we can, if we can say we have a Twitter page as well, which is at Pop Group. The sort of hashtag for our meeting is uh, hashtag PGG53. So if anyone wants to tweet about it, then please use that hashtag. That would be great. We'll be tweeting during the meeting and uh yeah we look forward to everybody coming to have a great time in leicester and enjoy enjoy leicester as a city as well of course and lots of lots of great food to have we've got a uh conference uh, dinner on the the tuesday evening complete with the pop group regulation kaylee <laughs> uh, and dancing. so you can you can find yourself uh, hand in hand with somebody in from pop group which uh, is always fairly strange <laughs> but yes yeah, so it's not only going to be uh, academically uh, interesting but it's also going to be a lot of lot of fun as well i think absolutely thanks again to rob richard and max let's hope for a really big turnout this january in leicester now one thing that comes across whenever you talk to any pop group regulars and there are a lot of them is this sense of community that has developed year after year as the conference has gone on. Last year, at Pop Group 52 at the University of Oxford Brookes, I was fortunate enough to hear from two of the conference's grandees, Professor John Turner and Professor Lawrence Cook, who told me about the origins of the conference and their experiences of attending it over the years. Right, I'm John Turner. That's John R.G. Turner in the middle to distinguish me from all the many millions of John Turners that are other John Turners in the world, some of whom are my close relatives. And I'm an evolutionary biologist, population geneticist, and uh, to some extent actually animal behaviour guy. I, I am Lawrence Cook. I've uh, been many years in the University of Manchester, now retired. I've been working on polymorphic snails for a great deal of my career and also on melanic moths, which is a very important uh, 
aspect of life in Manchester, or at least used to be until the frequency of the Melanic forms had declined. Well, the pop group began in 1966, I believe, and it followed another group, which was an informal discussion group called EGG, or Ecological Genetics Group, which flourished in April and was therefore known as the Easter Egg, which I was about to call it. And this was uh, certainly discussed genetics, but it was primarily ecological in bias. And Brian Clark and Peter O'Donnell, who had attended some of these meetings, decided that uh, a meeting, an informal meeting uh, with a more genetic slant uh, would be a very useful innovation, uh, that it might meet uh, uh, about the period of Christmas, either before or afterwards. And uh, very shortly after they had attended one of the EGG meetings, uh, the first meeting was founded, I believe, by those two people. Yes, the, the, the pop group has a very, um, is, as far as I know, unique. It's, it's a, a, effectively a scientific society which has no constitution, no committee, no leadership, no, um, no archives, and seems to operate on its own uh, by, by some extraordinary free-floating exercise. It meets annually. At each meeting, it's decided where it will meet next time. Uh, the host university organizes, the host department organizes the whole thing, and it just migrates around the country in, in that way. It's uh, very difficult to find very much about the history, in fact, indeed about the exact origins, because there is no archive or record. Or, in fact, it's been quite difficult to... Uh, trace where some of the meetings were. At one point we were having to, it was not known where some of the meetings had taken place and I had to go back, I happened to have kept all my um, my engagement diaries and I was able to find out where some of these meetings were because I'd been to them and it was all written down in my engagement diary but everyone else had completely forgotten where they'd been. So it, it's quite a, an extraordinary phenomenon which probably deserves a quite serious historical study if anyone could actually find the documentation to to um, prove the, to find out the study, but it's enlarged hugely. The first meeting had a very limited number of papers and no parallel sessions. There were just papers being given. And since then it's expanded. It took a good many years to expand, but of course there are now parallel sessions, very large attendance, and uh, flourishing in a quite extraordinary way. And I, I'm, as far as I know, this is pretty well unique in, in, in scientific history. Well, the, one of the most important things about it is its informality. Uh, it has also, over the years, attracted people from other countries uh, to join in and uh, discuss their work and uh, their perspective uh, with uh, the Brits who have been in the various towns uh, where the meetings have been held. As John said, it's circulated around the British Isles, but it's also been in the Netherlands once, I believe twice. Um, yeah. And it has been a great uh, forum for opening up and discussing ideas, both formally during presentations and informally in discussions before and afterwards, sometimes in a very flourishing bar, <laughs> which, which has been operating in the, in the evenings. Um, as an example, I think uh, 53 years ago, when we were first thinking about it, people were very concerned with the question of how and why variation uh, was maintained in populations, genetic variation in populations. And Richard Lewontin had published a paper uh, which he suggested that uh, in order to maintain 
variability, you had to eliminate the less fit, and that the problem of eliminating the less fit, that is to say the genetic load which was incurred by having variation, uh, could become a, a very serious uh, issue in terms of the survival of populations. Now, that argument ha had been uh, published and uh, obviously was in some people's minds, but at the first meeting there was uh, an invited speaker from the United States, Kenichi Kojima, who couldn't come because of bad weather, and his place was taken by Alan Robertson, who very quickly presented to us the contents of three papers which had just been written in response to Lewontin, which discussed alternative ways in which genetic variation could be maintained in populations without incurring the uh, apparent genetic load. And that opened up the subject, I think, uh, there must have been many other um, routes by which the subject was opened, but that at least for, for many people at that meeting opened up the subject from the point of view of discussion and examination of, of further options uh, which increased our understanding of the, the difficulties and the and the opportunities and the problems that were involved. I think I could give a, give a further example. I mean, in terms of the value, I, I just just instantaneously, almost, I, I just met up with someone. Who, it turns out we're both very interested in the same topic. She's working in, in Switzerland. I'm working here. We didn't know about each other. We've just uh, just discovered that we're both very interested in the same problem. So that's uh, that's across the generations and across the across Europe. One thing that's clear from both John and Lawrence is that pop group is a fixture in many researchers' lives, and one that develops with them. Someone else for whom this is true is Professor John Brookfield, who has attended every single meeting for the past 43 years. Last year, he told me why he's been coming for so long, and if you listen carefully, you may even hear a subtle reference to some of Lawrence Cook's work. So I'm John Brookfield, I'm Professor of Evolutionary Genetics at the University of Nottingham, and I'm a pretty much an old hand at the population genetics meetings. I've been coming to every one since December 1976, which was a meeting at the University of Durham, just as I started my PhD back in that year. So it's uh, certainly seen quite a lot of changes in that time, as you can imagine. In my early years on population genetics meetings, things were very much dominated by visual polymorphisms, things like the peppered moth, things like uh, the colour and banding polymorphisms and Nemoralis. And then when it was uh, more molecular data, it was entirely about allozymes, it was entirely about changes in the charge of soluble enzymes. And the big, big controversy where everyone took sides was about uh, neutralism versus selectionism relative to the polymorphisms which are detected by starch cell electrophoresis. So there was this really quite heated debate which was going on for about 10 years as to whether if you saw a polymorphism for fast and slow alleles in a, a gene in Drosophila or another species, that was maintained by some sort of balancing selection, or whether this was kind of just a neutral change caused by the balance between loss of variation by genetic drift and the gain of variation by random mutation. And it was one of these issues whereby essentially everyone concluded they were right and walked away from it. <laughs> and so it was never really 100% resolved, but now I think increasingly molecular tools are giving us some insight into that, but not perhaps so much at the particular loci, which were the focus of contention back in the 70s and 80s. And then one of the big things, which was when DNA sequence information started, which would be the 1980s, then it was incredibly hard won. I remember there was a famous paper by uh, Martin Kreitman, which was about finding the sequences of 11 alcohol dehydrogenase alleles in Drosophila melanogaster. And this was such an important breakthrough that it was uh, an article in Nature. And so, you know, it's sort of hard to imagine now that 
we were in a world once where this was just you know data beyond our wildest dreams to have the complete sequence of 11 different alleles from uh, and now of course everyone's routinely sequencing genomes and uh, doing searches for selection at a genome-wide scale in multiple individuals and so there's this kind of big data element now but in fact the underlying theory that you know the theory of genetic drift and the theory of selection and the interaction between the two and migration and so on that's pretty much the famous theories which were created in the 1920s and 1930s with additions over the years since then so it was always a, a famous cliche about population genetics that almost uniquely in biology it was a subject where the theory was way in advance of any data with which to look at the theory and so now we've got data in abundance and so it's really in a way a kind of renaissance i think of population genetics just moving to the area of big data it's a tremendously exciting time i think but it, for old stages like me i i find it quite disconcerting just how much data is available now and you know compared to the old days where we'd have sort of three new allele frequencies that summer you know <laughs> and that sort of thing well, I suppose it's my fundamental view that when you really boil it down and you want to find out about evolutionary biology, it's, it's all a bit hypothetical unless you at least strive to understand the genetic underpinning of the change in phenotypes which you see. So I think the area of evolutionary biology is much, much broader than the area of population genetics. But in a way, I think population genetics is its heart and core. You know? And uh, I think we're in a situation where it still remains true what I thought in 1976 that, you know, at the heart of evolutionary biology is, is something to do with genetic variation, and that therefore requires population genetics. And that truth of John's is at the heart of Pop Group, and it's why Heredity, the Genetic Society, and others sponsor it, and why people attending for the first time as PhD students keep on coming every year. And whether or not you are already a regular, or you're thinking about it for the first time, we do hope to see you there in Leicester in January. And if you do come, make sure to pop by the Heredity stand for a chat. As a reminder, you can find out anything you need to know about the next pop group meeting at populationgeneticsgroup.org.uk or you can find them on Twitter, at popgroup. As for us, you can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms and you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can also drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.